stock market wrapped up the week on Friday with weakness across the board as stocks sold off. The market's posting their biggest weekly decline in quite some time. The NASDAQ was down for a sixth straight day as markets are starting to price in higher short-term interest rates. The major catalyst for today, though, was the August non-farm payroll report, which came in slightly better than expected. We were expecting to add 295,000 private sector payroll jobs. Instead, we added 315,000 jobs in the private sector. Now, of course, like any non-farm payrolls report that we get on the first Friday of each month, it's very important to look at where the jobs were added. But just to keep this report in context, last month, if you recall, the month of July, we had a major ad in jobs. The non-farm payroll report in July came in at 528,000 jobs. So again, we added much less here in August, and that's despite the back-to-school season where retailers add tons of jobs to cope with higher demand in their industry. But we got a bunch of employment data on the week besides the non-farm payroll report, so I want to cover that first. On Tuesday, we got the Jolts jobs openings number. There, we were expecting to have 10.37 million open jobs. Instead, we had 11.24 million open jobs, which was a huge beat on the number. So we had a million more job openings than economists were expecting. Now, again, if we go back to last month, last month, we only had 10.7 million open jobs. This month, we had 11.24 million open jobs. And that was very bad news for the market, because as we have seen over the past several months, any good news on the economy is bad news for the market because good news on the economy gives the Federal Reserve more rope to start raising interest rates, which is very bad for stock prices. And so that's part of the reason for why we had so much weakness on the week for stocks. But moving to the Challenger jobs cut report year over year, there we saw a 30.3% increase in job cuts for the year. Now, that is very shocking and pales in comparison to the job openings report that we got in the JOLTS number. Again, how can we be adding more jobs when job cuts are being added year over year? This, I think, shows that while we have a lot of job openings in the economy, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, the reality is there are a lot of job openings out there that don't really exist. Again, I'll point to a company like Tesla. Tesla is currently on a hiring freeze, but you go to their website, they have tons of job applications open that you can apply for. There are hundreds, if not several hundreds of job positions that you can apply for for Tesla because they are keeping job applications open so that people can continue to apply for the jobs even though they're on a hiring freeze. This way, whenever they decide to start expanding again and start hiring people, they already have tons of applications for which they can go through. So those are job postings that are being included in the JOLTS report, the job openings report. But in reality, they're not actually job openings. But moving forward, we also got unemployment claims on Thursday. Initial unemployment claims came in at 232,000. That's about where we've been coming in in each of the past four weeks. But most notably, we had an increase in the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate rose for the first time in quite some time, went from three and a half to 3.7%. And so that is sort of 
questioning the narrative because again, if we look to the non-farm payrolls, we added 315,000 jobs and we also see there are tons of job openings. So why do we continue to see initial unemployment claims tick up? Well, I think there's quite, uh, quite a story there and I'll cover it in a second. But to go more in depth on the non-farm payrolls, if we look at where most of the jobs were added for the month of August, 68,000 jobs were added in professional and business services, followed by healthcare, which added 48,000 jobs. So those are good jobs, well-paying jobs in the economy. But then we look to the next biggest ad in the economy, which was the retail sector, which added 44,000 new jobs. Now, again, that has to do with the back to school season. Summer is ending. So people are back from their vacations. So people have more time to shop. They're going to get back to school supplies for their kids. So this is a very busy time of the year for retailers. That's why we added 44,000 jobs there. And again, a lot of these jobs might be temporary jobs because, again, it's just to get retailers through this season. Again, the retail business typically tends to be busier from the end of August through September and also during the holiday period. So a lot of these jobs might be temporary jobs and nonetheless, they're very low paying jobs as well. Moving to leisure and hospitality, which had been the leading sector in adding jobs for the past several months, also added 31,000 jobs for the month. And again, these are very low paying jobs in the economy. These are people picking up second part-time jobs because their first full-time job isn't enough to, for them to make ends meet because they're trying to cope with high inflation and high prices throughout the economy. And so that's one of the reasons why I think we're continuing to see the unemployment rate tick up slightly, even though we're adding more jobs in the economy. It's not that the economy is strong and so you have a bunch of people entering the workforce in high paying jobs, but instead the economy is very weak because of the inflation problems that are ravaging the middle class. So you have a lot of people picking up secondary, second part-time jobs to try and make ends meet. And again, that's why we see the big pickup in retail and leisure and hospitality jobs in the economy, which again, help to make the non-farm payroll numbers look better than they actually are. But still people buy that as a sense of a strong economy, but this is anything but a strong economy. Moving to the more important jobs in the market, manufacturing, there we only added 22,000 jobs. And again, that is where we need to add jobs the most because that's where we're going to bring on extra supply of goods, which will help decrease the inflation pressures in the economy. But there again, we're still lagging far behind. We only added 22,000 manufacturing jobs out of a non-farm payroll report, which added 315,000 total jobs. So when you add that all together with the challenger job cuts year over year being up 30%, right? With the unemployment claims going up to 233,000 again on the week, we see that there's over 800,000 people applied for initial unemployment claims in the month of August. We see that the labor market is starting to show some weakness, but there is still some strength in the job market in the sense that there still are some open jobs and that we still are adding some jobs throughout the economy. And again, that's giving economists and investors the impression that the economy still remains strong, despite the fact that we're in an official recession and despite the fact that interest rates are going to keep moving up as we move forward into the fall months. Now, 
with that, we also got the revised, revised non-farm productivity numbers quarter over quarter. Non-farm productivity dropped by 4.1% for the quarter, which again, as I explained, whenever this number drops, that is an inflationary pressure. If non-farm productivity is declining, that means that costs are rising for businesses. And again, businesses are going to pass those costs on to consumers as long as demand stays high and demand will stay high as long as interest rates are lower than the actual inflation rate. We also got revised unit labor costs quarter over quarter. There we saw a big increase, 10.2% increase in unit labor costs quarter over quarter. Again, inflationary pressures putting upward pressure on business costs. And again, those are going to get passed on to the consumer, meaning we have a lot more inflation in the pipeline. So we have the labor market starting to weaken slightly, still hasn't weakened as much as I expected it to just yet, but I still continue to believe we're going to see a big, big decline in non-farm payrolls in one of the next several months. It may be at the end of September, it may be at the end of October, maybe at the end of November. But again, I continue to see that as interest rates continue to slightly peak up more and more, there is more and more weakness in the economy and in the labor market. But again, we still see with that weakness in the economy, inflationary pressures from declining productivity and increased unit labor costs. So again, most investors are ignoring those numbers, but those are some of the most important numbers regarding future inflation, because again, that is going to put pressure on businesses to raise their prices to their customers. Another inflationary number that came out, we got average hourly earnings month over month. There we were expecting an increase of 0.4%. Instead, average hourly earnings only increased by 0.3%, which in a sense is good for inflation pressures slightly, but we still see costs arising for businesses that have hourly earnings or that have employees earning hourly wages. Their cost pressures, again, are going up on the labor side of things as well. But this also shows that the economy is weakening because average hourly earnings are increasing, but they're not increasing enough to keep up with the rising cost of living for consumers. So if you look at the first eight months of the year, average hourly earnings have only increased by 2.8%. Now, again, that is more inflation pressure that has to get passed to the consumer. But if you annualize that number, we are on pace to have average hourly earnings increase by 4.2% this year when the inflation rate officially is 8.5%. And when unofficially, inflation is in the double digits closer to 15 or 20%. So as we see nominal average hourly earnings rising, real average hourly earnings are falling because they are not keeping up with the cost of living, which again is further weakening the economy. Now, again, the way the markets reacted to this data, because they ignored most of the data like the non-farm productivity numbers and the unit labor costs and average hourly earnings, they were more focused on the non-farm payrolls report and also other strong economic data supposedly that came out earlier in the week, the markets were really shattered this week. If we go back to last Friday when Powell made his press conference speech at Jackson Hole, the markets have dropped 6.5% since 
since last Friday alone. So the S&P 500 has given up 6.5% in the past five trading days alone. Again, extreme weakness in the markets. And as I speculated last week on the podcast, we were ready to make this next leg down in the bear market. And here we are getting back to down over 18% on the year for the entire market as a whole. Again, that's just looking at the S&P. There's been actually even more damage in the NASDAQ. But on Friday, the Dow Jones closed down one spot, 0.7%. S&P 500, same thing. On the day, was down one spot, 0.7%. And the NASDAQ was down one spot, 3%. To cap off a very weak stock market week uh, across the board. Now, again, even interestingly enough, with the weakness in the stock market, bonds also sold off. We saw treasury yields on the U.S. 10-year get as high as 3 spot 3%. They finished the week down at 3.19%. But again, with all the major weakness in stocks, a lot of people would have expected that investors jumped into bonds as a flight to safety. But as I've been explaining, with the process of quantitative tightening starting to ramp up here in the month of September, a lot of investors are very hesitant to go into bonds as a safe haven asset because the biggest owner of bonds in the world, the Federal Reserve, is about to start selling their bonds into the market, which is, again, going to put huge downward pressure on bond prices and huge upward pressure on bond yields. But so we saw a complete bloodbath across the board. Stocks down, bonds down. We also saw gold had a very rough week. Gold was down all the way to 1712 on the week. Oil also got hit very hard. Oil finished the week trading at 86 spot 87 for a barrel of West Texas intermediary crude. And we also saw cryptocurrencies got hit very hard. Bitcoin now trading below 19,900. And this was really a bloodbath across the board for everything in the markets except for the US dollar. Now, the market did start the day strong on the employment data that came out in relatively weak uh, you know, labor market, again, especially on the uptick that the unemployment rate rose, but bonds sold off sharply in the morning. And again, the S&P 500 is now down six and a half percent since last Friday. But the markets tried to rally this morning on the weaker than expected uh, labor force participation rate. But they couldn't hold that rally and stocks rolled over into the afternoon. And again, we saw a very weak finish overall for stocks as we head into this holiday long weekend. But again, the S&P 500 being down six and a half percent in just five days is incredible stock market weakness. Again, this is put to bed the fact that people were expecting we were out of this bear market. We were heading for new highs. Again, we are just starting quantitative tightening now, and the Fed has barely even started it. But if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 and the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, which is the Fed printing money to support the economy, the stock market clearly trades with the amount of money being printed. And as the Fed's balance sheet has expanded over the past several years, so has the stock market in complete tune with that. Now that that is going to reverse, the Fed is taking liquidity out of the market that is going to put much downward pressure on stocks. And believe me, we're down 18% for the year, but we are headed a lot lower, especially on the S&P 500 and most especially on the NASDAQ. 
But again, there is no bid for bonds in this market. I have been saying for quite some time, bonds are return-free risk. I continue to have people ask me about buying I-bonds, buying long-term treasury bonds here because they think rates have gone high. Rates are still historically low. And again, real rates are at all-time lows because they're not even close to catching up with the inflation rate. So interest rates still remain highly negative here. And there is no reason whatsoever that you should accept a negative yielding asset. And I'll get into that more on the podcast. But if you look at the TLT, which is the iShares 20-year treasury bond ETF, on the week, the, the ETF was down on the lows 4% on the week, finished the week down two spots, uh, 7%. But if you think about the typical investor that owns bonds, that is the most risk-averse investor in the market. That is an investor trying to take risk off the table, trying to go into a safe haven asset. But if you own a safe haven asset and that asset can drop by 4.5% in the middle of a week, how can that give you any margin of safety whatsoever? Again, bonds are not safe. They are return-free risk. And they are one of the riskiest assets in this market because, again, there is a ton of interest rate risk in bonds and a ton of inflation risk in bonds. And to this point, even though bonds have gotten crushed on the year, investors have still not priced in enough long-term inflation expectations into bonds, and they are still uninvestable at this point. But the, again, the markets and bonds rolled over today and this week. Bonds are very weak this week as we head into September and quantitative tightening is kicking off. Now, I did look at the Fed's balance sheet that got released on Thursday night, as it always does. Over the past week, the Fed did shrink its balance sheet some. So they are sticking to the plan of picking up quantitative tightening here in September. The balance sheet started last week at $8.85 trillion. It ended this week at $8.82 trillion. So they did sell some bonds off. But again, that's barely anything. That's not going to put any mark on inflation. They have to sell a lot more assets into the market and get interest rates to go way higher if they want to fight inflation. But again, just look at the damage done to the markets in five days from the Fed shrinking its balance sheet to, from $8.85 trillion to $8.82 trillion. Again, that's barely a drop in the bucket. That's not going to do anything to stop inflation. But even that small of a move in their balance sheet was enough to take the markets down 6.5%. So could it, again, could you imagine if they shrink their balance sheet by 2 or $3 trillion to actually put a hurt on inflation? That is going to absolutely kill the markets, kill the economy, and put the economy in a very severe recession moving forward. The Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by Perfect Spiral. Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365-day, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course, the season. Listen to Perfect Spiral and subscribe to the podcast anywhere, but most particularly on Spotify. Moving to the economic data that came out on the week that didn't have to do with the labor markets, we move to the HPI month-over-month -month numbers. Now, what this shows is the change in the purchase price of homes with mortgages backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We were expecting a 0.8% increase in the purchase price of those homes. 
for the month. Instead, we only had a 0.1% increase, showing again how much the housing market is starting to slow. I've been warning about this, but as interest rates begin to rise, and again, the Federal Reserve owns a lot of mortgage-backed securities that they're about to start selling onto the market, that is going to put upward pressure on mortgage rates. And again, this is a housing market that cannot handle higher mortgage rates. So as we see mortgage rates now starting to tick up again, the housing market is continuing to slow very drastically. Now, if we look at the change in the selling price of a single family home in 20 different metropolitan areas, as measured by the S&P composite 20 year HPI index, year over year, prices of homes are up 18.6%. And again, where is this in the CPI? We see no measure of home prices in the CPI, honestly, because again, one third of the CPI is supposed to represent housing. But if housing prices, as measured in this index, are up 18.6% year over year, and again, that's in metropolitan areas. In a lot of rural areas, housing prices are up even more than that. But if they're up 18.6%, then why is the CPI, which includes housing as a third of its percentage, only measuring inflation at 8.5%? Again, it shows how rigged the CPI is. But again, we see that most of that increase occurred at the back end of this past year. When we look at the most recent months, again, as measured by the home price index month over month, housing prices are not rising anymore. And again, that's showing that there, there is a major slowdown in the economy. There's not a lot of activity in the housing market. The home building stocks are really struggling here. Again, you have mortgage lenders are starting to really hurt. Real estate brokers are selling less houses and the housing market is slowing because the entire economy is slowing. With that, we also got the Consumer Confidence Index earlier in the week. Now, this was a major catalyst for the stock market sell-off this week because there we saw consumer confidence. We had a surprise beat. There we were expecting the index to come in at 97.6. Instead, there was a huge beat on the expectation. It came in at 103.2. So that showed that consumers are more confident, which means they're likely to spend more money in the future, especially on discretionary items. Now, I was actually very surprised by this. I was talking to a few people that I work with, and they think a big reason for the beat in this consumer confidence index was the lower gas prices on the month, as well as student loan forgiveness. And in hindsight, that actually makes a lot of sense because to the extent that I, th I think the student loan forgiveness affects 46 million people with student loan debt. And so to the extent you have 46 million people just had 10 or $20,000 of their student loans wiped out, that is going to make them much more confident and much more likely to spend in the economy, uh, again, in discretionary areas. And again, that's one of the many reasons for why the student loan forgiveness program is actually going to cause inflation to be much worse in the future, not help the, the inflation problem whatsoever. We also got the Chicago PMI. There, we came in right around expectations at 52.2, but we didn't get much of a beat there, so it wasn't much of a story. Crude oil inventories were down 3.3 million, and despite that, again, oil sold off on the week on both recession fears and also on the stronger dollar. 
and I'll cover that again in a bit. But we also got construction spending month over month, which decreased by 0.4%. Again, more weakness in the housing market. You have construction spending is declining by 0.4%. ISM manufacturing prices came in under expectations, 52.5%. And Ward's total vehicle sales came in at 13.2 million versus a 13.3 million expected number. Factory orders also missed, came in down 1%. We were expecting a 0.2% increase there. Instead, we got a 1% decrease. So again, we have tons of data coming out that the economy is weakening, but any inflation data or any data relevant to price increases in the future is coming in much, much hotter than expected. And that, again, supports the stagflation narrative that I've been talking about, that just because we are in a recession now, Again, whether you want to believe that or not, we are in an official recession. But just because we're in a recession now and just because the recession is going to get much more severe, which it will, that does not mean inflation is going to come down. We are in stagflation where we're going to have unemployment continue to pick up, but prices are also going to continue to rise in the face of that weakness in the labor market, which is starting to roll over now. And again, we have stagflation and the only other time we've had stagflation in the United States was the 1970s. Most economists think that the 1970s was a fluke. But again, they're going to find out here that stagflation can occur anytime monetary policy gets out of control the way it's been out of control over the past decade and especially over the past couple of years. But again, tons of data supporting the economy weakening and also supporting the fact that inflation is not peaking. It is going to get much worse as we see productivity numbers coming in worse than expected and unit labor costs coming in much higher than expected. Average hourly earnings increasing, although not increasing enough to keep up with the cost of living. And we see that consumers still have the confidence to go out and to spend on discretionary items because their interest rates are too low and they haven't created a demand destruction. They haven't taken away enough credit from consumers to get them to stop spending. But with that, I also want to cover some economic data we got from around the rest of the world, most of it inflation data. And again, this is happening in other economies, but it's very relevant to the United States because the United States is the biggest importer in the entire world, we import more goods and services than any other nation in the world. And in that sense, our economy is extremely weak. But in that sense, if we have higher inflation in other economies, that inflation is going to cause import prices to rise in the future, which means that the prices Americans pay at the store are going to be even higher. But if we look at, at Spain, the CPI year over year in Spain came in at 10.4%. So again, we have double digit inflation, not just in the United States, but also in the Eurozone, as we see in Spain, Germany, Switzerland. We also have it in the UK and Canada and Japan all over the place. Speaking of Japan, Japan had tons of economic data come out that, again, shows that they have stagflation. They saw housing starts decreased by 5.4 percent year over year, but yet they have a higher inflation rate than the United States. Look at the CPI flash estimate year over year for Euro. The Eurozone is projecting 9.1% inflation for the upcoming year. Again, they're struggling with gas prices even more so than the United States is. 
And even if you look at the production numbers for Europe, the producer price index month over month for Europe was up 4%. So business costs were up 4% on the month alone in Europe. Again, that is to produce products that are going to be imported into the United States. So those products Americans are going to pay a higher price for. And all this inflation data coming out of these economies is going to make the United States suffer as well. Moving into some of the earnings reports we got this week, Hormel Foods, which is, makes a lot of the consumer staples products in grocery stores, their stock fell 4.2% after they reported their earnings. They beat on revenues, but missed on bottom line earnings, which means that again, their costs rose more than expected. And they passed some of their costs on to consumers, but they also had to eat some of their costs as well. So the food producer reported a beat on revenues, but their earnings missed slightly. And just an interesting point, spam sales hit a record high for the seventh year in a row. Now, if the economy is doing so well, as a lot of economists would have you believe, why are spam sales reaching record highs for a seventh straight year? People do not buy spam when the economy is good. They buy it when they're struggling to make ends meet because it's very cheap. It's, it's a product that you eat when you have to, not when you want to. I'm sure that a lot of people would prefer to eat much more expensive foods, but they can't afford them because, again, their paychecks are not going as far as they have in the past because average hourly earnings are up 4.2% on an annualized basis, but inflation is up much more than that. And so people are having to buy spam to try and cut down on their budgets. And it shows how weak the consumer is despite the fact that everyone thinks the consumer is so strong and despite the fact that the consumer confidence number went up. Because again, a big reason for the consumer confidence index going up was because of lower gas prices on the month. But the only reason gas prices are down on the month is because the dollar is up on the month and the dollar being strong, that the days of that are very numbered. But once the dollar actually rolls over and begins to fall, oil prices are gonna rise even much higher and that's, again, going to put even more pressure on the consumer, which means they're going to have to resort to eating even more spam, which is why I think a company like Hormel Foods could be a very good investment for a lot of people because, again, they have a product that people need, not a product that people want. And so in that sense, they are a very recession-proof business. Again, their revenues beat expectations, even though they missed on the quarter. Big Lots and Best Buy also reported earnings. Now, both of those companies beat their earnings expectations, but I'd have to put an asterisk by that because both of these stocks have been beaten down so heavily and a lot of their earnings projections have been cut severely by analysts because, again, the consumer is so weak, they're spending all their money on trying to buy spam from Hormel Foods. They don't have enough money left over to buy stuff at Big Lots to renovate their home or to buy new TVs at Best Buy. And in fact, a lot of the products that are sold in Best Buy were bought during the pandemic. And so all of that demand was pulled forward and no longer exists for those discretionary products. Same thing with home renovations. A lot of people moved in the pandemic, renovated their homes in the pandemic. They're now no longer renovating their homes to as near as much of an extent. And so that's why Big Lots and Best Buy have their stocks have been clobbered in the past year, because again, a lot of that demand was pulled forward and is now gone, but also people don't have the discretionary income left 
to spend money on things like home renovations and new TVs or new electronics, because again, inflation is eating away all of their paycheck. And also, this shows though, the fact that Big Lots and Best Buy were able to beat on earnings, even though the expectations were extremely low, the fact that they beat on earnings shows there's not enough demand destruction that these businesses are beating on earnings. Again, if the Federal Reserve is going to stop inflation, they need to create demand destruction. They need to raise interest rates high enough to where people can no longer borrow more money to buy discretionary products, and they are not accomplishing that, which is why I know a lot of companies are going to be able to at least pass some of their cost increases onto their customers. And the stocks that are doing that most effectively are the stocks that are going to be the great buys here in the next year, two years, as we continue to move into this inflation super cycle. So again, you want to own more of the defensive stocks, the stocks that sell goods and services that people need, not necessarily the stocks that sell goods and services that people want. But again, that is why we see that there is no demand destruction because people can continue to swipe the credit card to buy discretionary items. And as long as that is the case, businesses are going to keep passing their added costs on to customers. Again, businesses want to increase their costs as much as possible. The only thing that stops businesses from doing that is they don't want to hurt their sales volumes. But if they understand and know that they can pass higher costs onto the customer and not have it affect their sales volumes, at least not to as much of an extent, they are going to do so. Businesses need to continue to pass their added costs on. And as long as they believe their customers are going to pay those higher costs, they are going to keep passing those added costs on. Now, moving to a different sector of the market, Okta also reported earnings. Now, they're a cloud-based software company. Again, I've been talking about this sector for a while. There's a lot of these companies out there. Now, Okta beat on their quarterly results and improve their forward outlook. And despite that, their stock dropped 16% after reporting earnings. So there's an old saying on Wall Street, if a stock cannot rally on good news, it's probably not going to rally at all. So again, you have a company that beat on its earnings expectations, improved its forward guidance, and yet the stock got slammed down 16% immediately after reporting its earnings. So again, People are throwing these things away because the market is sniffing out a more severe recession in the future. Look at MongoDB. Now, I hadn't even heard of this company before, but it's another cloud computing company. They also dropped 16% after they reported earnings. Now, they reported a smaller loss than the last quarter, and they also beat on revenue forecasts. But again, we see that the cloud software space continues to get hammered. Even the bigger names like Google, Amazon continuing to sell off. But again, the cloud computing business is very reliant on business spending for marketing and admin expenses. Now, if we're heading to a recession, businesses are going to have to cut their costs because they're going to have a much harder time maintaining their revenues in the future, especially a lot of these technology type companies that are still just getting off the ground and just starting their businesses up. But if they're going to have to start cutting costs, again, the two easiest ways to do that is to lay workers off and to cut your marketing and cloud spend budget. And so that's, again, why these sectors 
are not good investments at this time, in my opinion, because a lot of their customers, which are businesses, are going to stop spending money in these areas. And that is why you don't want to own cyclical stocks as well. Again, we're heading into a very severe recession. There is no reason to own cyclical businesses for any reason. You don't want to own auto businesses. You don't want to own leisure and hospitality businesses. You don't want to own banks. You don't want to own cloud software businesses. And you don't want to own semiconductor businesses. And speaking of semiconductor businesses, NVIDIA also slid 4% this week because they warned that they are going to have a lot less sales than previously expected. And that also affected advanced micro devices, Micron. Again, the semiconductor space is the most cyclical space in the economy. And that is the sector that typically leads the markets. If the semiconductor space is trading up, typically speaking, the markets will trade up as well. And vice versa, if that space is trading down, the markets will also trade down. But look at some of these semiconductor stocks. A lot of these were the stocks that people were pounding the table on on CNBC over the past couple of years. Look at NVIDIA. It is down 59% from the highs. And again, if you look at some of the other stocks in this space, Micron down 42%. The SMH, which is the Venec uh, Semiconductor ETF, down 34% from the highs. So this sector has gotten completely crushed. But these stocks are still extremely expensive. Look at NVIDIA. NVIDIA still trades at 45 times earnings. So you buy that business at the current price and at their current earnings level, it's going to take 45 years for that business to generate enough income for you to make back your initial investment. Again, that is based on trailing earnings, which their earnings are about to likely fall off a cliff. Not only is their sector slowing down dramatically, but they are coming out and warning that they see much slower business in the future. So again, there's no reason to own any cyclical stocks here. Just because these stocks are down well off the highs does not mean they can't trade much lower from here. But speaking about stocks that are way off their highs, I wanna dive into the gold stocks a little bit because the gold stocks are also down well off their highs. Now I've been recommending gold stocks for a very long time now, but these stocks have also gotten clobbered. So I wanna talk about it a little bit. Now, two of the bigger gold mining companies in the world, in fact, the two biggest in the world, would be Newmont Mining and Barrick Gold. Now, I've talked a lot about Newmont Mining. Newmont is down 55% from its highs, and that was just from a few months ago. Barrick Gold is also down 40% from the highs. Even if you look at the broader sector in the markets, the GDX, which is the senior gold mining companies in the markets, they, that ETF is down 43% from the highs. And the GDXJ, which is the junior mining companies, the more, more smaller mining companies, down 42% from the highs. But look at these stocks compared to other stocks in the market. Now, gold mining stocks are very speculative in nature. They're also very risky investments. There's a lot of risks inherent with the gold mining business, but they're also a very leveraged bet on the price of gold. So they are very risky in nature and they're very volatile. In fact, a lot of them are much more volatile than the overall markets. But if you look at some of the, the most speculative names in the market, like the growth stocks, again, all these gold mining companies may be speculative by nature, 
But for the most part, they are value stocks that pay very high dividends. You know, Newmont Mining has gotten so cheap, it now pays almost a 6% dividend yield. Barrick Gold pays well over a 2% dividend yield. And again, these are very good value-oriented stocks in that they pay very high levels of income and they've gotten very, very cheap. But they have been trading like some really speculative growth stocks. Look at the ARK Innovation Fund, which I continue to harp on. This fund is so extremely overvalued where it is now, but this fund is down 67% in the past 12 months alone. Now, this despite the fact that the stock that that fund continues to see net inflows month after month after month after month, and the fund is still down 67% over the past 12 months. So in other words, the fund is receiving money, and before they can almost even get their hands on it, the money is getting completely incinerated because, again, this fund is buying the most speculative growth stocks on the market, the Teslas, Zooms, Teladocs. Coinbase, Square, or Block, right? A lot of these companies have never proven their business models or they're extremely overpriced or they're bubbles. But th this, this ETF is down so much, but you have a lot of value-oriented stocks that are almost down just as much. Now, Kathy Wood, who runs the ARK Innovation Fund, has said in the past few months that she believes that this period of time is the worst misallocation of investment capital in financial market history. Now, personally, I agree with her. But what I don't agree with is where her sentiment comes on that. Because she thinks that we're going to have so much technology innovation over the next couple of years that it's going to completely change the way we live and it's going to cause massive deflation. Couldn't be more wrong. She has no clue on what is going on in the economy. She has no clue on what higher interest rates are going to do to her stocks that she loves. They are going to get absolutely crushed. A lot of the companies she owns are going to go down much further from here. A lot of them are probably going to go bankrupt. But she is right in the sense that this is the worst misallocation of investment capital in financial market history, but she's right for the wrong reasons. The reason that this is the worst misallocation of investment capital in financial market history is because we have massive inflation, the worst inflation the global economy has ever seen, and the worst inflation the United States has ever seen. And yet the dollar has been the best inflation hedge, which is completely asinine and ironic. The inflation means that the intrinsic value of the dollar is going down right? It's purchasing power is going down. So when the CPI shows that inflation is 8.5% for the past year, again, it's a lot more, but if you just take the CPI at its face value, that means that the purchasing power of the dollar is down 8.5% over the past year. Now, again, the dollar has been the best inflation hedge this year, besides for maybe oil, and that's about it. But the dollar index is up 14.6% this year and is up 18.5% in the past 12 months. Again, that makes no sense why anyone is rushing to buy dollars here. It just shows you how clueless investors are. Now, I've gone over this many times. I went over it last week. But just to go over it quickly again for any new listeners, the dollar is rallying because People are buying dollars because they think we've hit peak inflation. 
They think we've hit peak inflation because they see the economy weakening and they think that the economy weakening is automatically going to bring down inflation. That is so wrong and so misguided. Again, I went over that before, but inflation is not slowing down anytime soon. People are also buying dollars because interest rates are going up. And so they're jumping into dollars to try and get those interest rates. Again, that makes no sense. Why you would accept, for instance, if you buy a 10-year bond, which is a promise to pay cash in the future, you're getting a 3.1% rate of return when inflation is 8.5%, making your real rate in rate of return negative 5%. So there's no reason to do that. But even if you look at gold, which is supposed to be a real inflation hedge, gold, which started the year at about $1,829 an ounce, is now trading at $1,712 an ounce. So it's down 6.3% on the year. And I keep hearing people saying how gold does not work anymore because it's not an inflation hedge. You have all this inflation, yet gold is not going up. Again, I've explained this. Gold is not going up because the dollar is so strong. Yes, it doesn't necessarily make sense that gold is not going up. But what also doesn't make sense is that the dollar is going up. Again, gold is measured in terms of dollars. So it's not that gold is getting less valuable. It's that the dollar in the current currency markets and the foreign exchange markets is getting more valuable. Again, intuitively, that makes absolutely no sense. Inflation is killing the value of the dollar, yet traders keep jumping in to buy more dollars. In fact, every time we get an inflation number higher than expected, people sell gold and buy dollars on the anticipation that the Federal Reserve is going to fight that inflation off, and they've yet to prove that they can do that. And so this has to eventually become a show-me market. The Fed has to show that they actually have the guts to fight inflation off by letting interest rates rise as high as they have to. If that means letting interest rates go to 10, 15, 20%, the Fed has to do that. But they're not going to do that, which is why I know inflation is going to stay so strong. Because again, the Federal Reserve shrank their balance sheet from $8.85 trillion to $8.82 trillion this week. And that alone, that drop in the bucket, caused the markets to go down 6.5%. So if they actually shrank their balance sheet by 20 or 30 or 40% more, the markets are going to go down by 20 or 30 or 40% more. And that would cause a huge depression, a financial crisis. And so the Fed is not going to let that happen. So I've long said the Federal Reserve is going to continue to give the impression they are fighting inflation, but they're not going to do what's necessary to actually fight inflation. But gold, despite everyone's negative opinions on it, has actually been doing much better. Now, personally, I think a lot of people that are traders in the market, they tend to miss the bigger picture because they're focused on day-to-day -day activity. But if you look at gold, for the year. Again, it's down 6.3%. Now, again, if you had bought the ARC fund on January 1st, you would be down 58% on that investment. If you bought the NASDAQ, you'd be down 26% on that investment. If you bought the S&P 500, you'd be down 18% on the year. So gold has beaten all of those investments over the past year, right? Since the start of 2022. So to that extent, gold is doing its job, right? Because if you bought gold instead of buying the S&P 500, instead of being down 18%, you'd be down 6.3%.
5%, which is a 12% outperformance of the overall markets. Now, anyone who understands the market understands just how hard it is to beat the market, but you could have done just that healthily by owning gold instead of buying the S&P 500. Let's look to other places that would be considered safe havens. Again, I talked about bonds in the beginning of the podcast. Had you have bought bonds on January 1st by the TLT fund, the TLT, which is, again, the long-term bond fund, is down 23% on the year. So again, bonds are not safe haven assets. There is nothing more risky than perhaps the, uh, other than, than the NASDAQ or the ARK Innovation Fund, there is a lot more risk in bonds than there is in stocks. At least with stocks, you have potential upside. You have the uh, impact of compound interest over time as a business grows, right? You can collect dividends from a stock. But if you're looking for safety, bonds are clearly not it. Again, the most risk averse investors who are trying to buy safe havens usually buy bonds. If you did that in the beginning of the year, you're down more than 23%. Again, this S&P 500 is only down 18%. So like I've been saying, the best way to avoid inflation or to avoid downside risk is not to own bonds. It's to either own gold or to own the more defensive value-oriented stocks. Now, some of the stocks that you could own if you're not uh, willing to invest in the gold mining sector, again, gold is a very safe asset, but gold mining businesses are very risky one, because they're much more volatile than gold, but two, because there's a lot of inherent risks in the gold mining industry. But if you want to own more defensive stocks, just to throw out some names as, a, as an idea, some of the stocks that are going to get hurt much less than other stocks in the next couple of years, as we head deeper into a severe recession and more inflation, think of stocks like Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, right? Uh, AstraZeneca, AbV, waste management, uh, the defensive stocks, the defense stocks like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, right? Those types of businesses are going to be able to weather the inflation storm much better than businesses like those that comprise the ARK Innovation Fund. Because again, businesses like Coca-Cola and Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble can pass higher costs to their customers because they sell products that people need. And so even if they raise their prices, people have to buy their products. So they're just going to eat the higher costs. That is the more defensive sector of the market. But that is where you want to be in the next couple of years, because this is not the type of market to step out and take a ton of risk. Again, just because a fund like the ARK Innovation Fund is down 67% from the highs, does not mean it can't go down another 67% from here. And it is likely going to, especially as interest rates rise enough to kill the markets, but not enough to kill inflation. But again, if you're looking to try and take some risk that you see there's a big upside potential that far outweighs the downside risk, in my view, some of the gold mining stocks, again, represent huge values here. Newmont Mining down 31% on the year. Now, remember, this is with gold only being down 6% on the year. So gold's down 6% on the year, but you have stocks like Newmont Mining down 31%, Barrick Gold down 19.6% on the year, and the GDX down 24% on the year. 
the GDXJ down 29% on the year. So again, the gold mining stocks have been completely oversold. Now, one of the problems with the gold mining industry in general is that because of inflation, their costs have been rising exponentially, like Newmont Mining, their labor costs are up 30% on the year. And also energy is a big cost for these gold miners. So the cost of labor and energy is going up, showing how bad inflation is embedded in the overall economy. But the price of gold has actually gone down. So to that extent, these gold mining companies actually had pretty bad quarters last quarter. That is one of the reasons why they've been so oversold. But again, they are going to have very good quarters as gold eventually turns around once investors figure out that inflation is here to stay and that they need to buy a safe haven asset that represents a flight of safety away from inflation. So again, as we head deeper into this recession, once people figure out that inflation isn't going away, they're not going to go into bonds as a flight to safety. They're eventually going to move into gold as a flight of safety, again, especially once they recognize how bad this inflation problem actually is in the economy. But again, you got to own the more defensive stocks that can manage a recession much better, like a lot of the ones I just named off. And again, gold is a very safe haven store of value. If you bought gold in the beginning of the year, you are only down 6.3% on that gold purchase. But again, stocks are down in the S&P 18%, the NASDAQ 26%, and some of the more speculative stocks are down 50, 60, 70, 80%. So if you're looking to just preserve some of the wealth you have, you might want to consider buying physical gold and keeping it in a safe somewhere, or you can buy it electronically in physical form by buying the GLD, but gold is a very safe investment. And again, it makes absolutely no sense that the dollar index is up 14.5% on the year with as much as of inflation as we've had. But again, that is just due to the complacency that investors have, that they think that inflation has peaked, that the Federal Reserve is going to be able to bring inflation down with just raising interest rates a couple more percent. A lot of investors even think inflation is just going to go away on its own. When again, you have average hourly earnings rising, unit labor costs rising, productivity is decreasing, you have inflation problems all over the world, which is going to cause more inflation in the United States. So again, gold is a solid buy here. And you won't hear that if you look at CNBC or any of these other investing uh, platforms or financial media platforms, because Again, nobody understands just how embedded inflation is in the economy. I talked about how labor costs have increased. Labor costs, once they increase, never decrease, right? If McDonald's hires a worker and pays them $17 an hour, it's not like next year they're going to lower that person's pay to $16 an hour. It's not like next year they're going to start hiring people for $16 an hour. That just doesn't happen. Once labor costs go up, they stay high. And labor costs are a big input cost for most businesses. For most businesses, the biggest input cost is labor, right? Rent prices. Once rent prices go up, they never come back down, right? So you're, you see inflation is embedded in the economy. And even if inflation doesn't continue to increase to the extent it's been increasing in the past few months, which I think it will, by the way, but even if it doesn't, high prices are here to stay. And so that means that people who are struggling to make ends, now, and ends meet now are going to continue to struggle to make ends meet 
for the foreseeable future. So again, this is a perfect time to buy an inflation hedge and owning some physical gold, take some risk off the table. But also if you wanna have some more risky investments that have huge upside potential, the gold mining stocks are great buys here. And the great thing is, if you step in and buy the gold mining stocks now, in my opinion, a lot of those stocks have already had a lot of the downside risks priced in. So I think there's a very, very minimal amount that these stocks can continue to fall. But there is an incredible upside potential for a lot of these businesses. And look, of course, you can't just have 100% of your net worth in physical gold because you need to own some sort of productive assets that pay you income. And the thing is, if you own a lot of the defensive businesses, like again, if you own Coca-Cola, if their costs increase by 10%, they can easily raise the prices of their drinks by 10% and pass those costs on to customers. That means you as a shareholder get more dividend income as they continue to increase their revenues and their profitability. So owning a lot of those defensive stocks are going to do very well over the course of the next couple of years. And again, you're getting dividend income. So you're getting paid to wait for those stocks to go up. So you can own gold to be defensive. You can own defensive oriented stocks that pay high dividends. And again, you got to own defensive stocks here because as interest rates rise, growth stocks are going to get hit very hard. Again, the U.S. markets, most particularly the NASDAQ and the S&P 500, most of them are comprised of growth stocks. You look at the S&P 500, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Tesla, NVIDIA make up a huge portion of the S&P 500. So if you think owning the S&P 500 makes you diversified or makes you own uh, a, a more conservative investment, you're wrong. Again, the S&P 500 is down 18% on the year. Gold is down 6%. So again, I can't understand why anyone is telling me that gold is not working here. Yes, it has not gone up as much as I thought it would yet. But again, it's holding up very well relative to the rest of the market. And if you think that gold hasn't gone up, it doesn't make any sense. So it's no longer an inflation hedge. Well, just remember, it also doesn't make any sense that the dollar is up 14% on the year when we have the worst inflation ever in the United States economy. And by forgiveness is going to make it much worse, right? The government's going to keep spending money that they don't have that eventually has to get printed. And so therefore, inflation is going to continue to get worse in the United States. In wrapping up, subscribe to the newsletter that I have for more detailed market coverage and analysis. The Thinking Long and Short newsletter is an investment professional's newsletter that's a tool for financial advisors and individual investors to stay current on financial market conditions. Investment professionals can use the insightful thoughts provided in the newsletter to keep their clients well-informed and properly positioned to achieve their financial goals. You get to stay up to date with financial market commentary, investment analysis, and trading thoughts. And you can also get the newsletter. It comes out, I try to do four or five a week. This week, I was only able to get one in. It was a very hectic week for me. But the thing is, is I make it a very quick read. I try to get it out in the morning or midday, but you can read it in five minutes. And you get caught up on everything you need to know about what's going on in the markets and the economy to understand everything you need to know to achieve your financial goals. And the thing is, if you continue to, to watch the mainstream financial news, 
it's very horrible with the advice that they give. And it's so misguided. And so many people, so many so-called experts keep going on CNBC. They give terrible information. They mislead the audience. And the analysis there is just terrible. These people have been recommending buying growth stocks. They think we're not in a recession. These were the same people saying that when the pandemic started, we were going to have deflation. Then they said, oh, we have inflation, but it's transitory, meaning it's only going to be here for a month or two. Then they said transitory actually means six months. Now they're saying inflation has peaked. They're saying that the economy has never been so strong, even though we have spam sales at a seven-year high. I mean, it's unbelievable how misguided a lot of these so-called experts are on CNBC, you know, and so it's very important. Follow the podcast, like and subscribe to the channel, help the podcast get out there to more people. If you're listening on Spotify, hit the follow button. It really helps the podcast, but we need more people to hear honest opinions from people like me on what's actually going on in the investment world, because most people, they don't have a clue. A lot of investors have lost a ton of money this year. A lot of people, they've had their portfolios absolutely blow up. Even some of the people I've spoken to, they thought that they had their money well diversified, invested conservatively, only to find out they own an S&P 500 index. And again, as I just mentioned, that means that you basically own a bunch of high tech, high growth stocks and you're not diversified because the S&P 500 has become so overly weighted in growth stocks that have business models that are way overvalued and that are cyclical businesses that are going to really hurt during this next recession. So again, this podcast and the newsletter, it brings clarity to what's actually going on on Wall Street and how the economy is shifting and what's going on and how it's going to affect your money. So like and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on Spotify, again, hit the follow button and get subscribed. Not only does it help the podcast, but it's going to help you stay focused on achieving your investment goals in a time that's really uncertain. And it really gives clarity to what's actually going on. Again, if you would look at the gold market and say, why is gold not going up when inflation is at all time highs? I can break that down for you in a way that people on CNBC just simply don't break it down for you. And I help really lay out in a very simple way what's going on in the market, what's going on in the economy, and how you can benefit from what's going on and how you can protect your money and achieve your financial goals in an incredibly difficult time.